0: Chapter 1. Ukraine Enters the 21st Century On the 21st of April, 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine. But when he, for the first time, stepped onto the international stage in the UN General Assembly on the 25th of September that same year, it was under circumstances that were far from desirable for him. He had ridden to power on the promise of more transparency and less corruption, and his address to the UN in New York was also appropriately delivered. Dressed in a black suit, Zelensky stepped up to the podium and gave an eloquent speech about global responsibility and shared values in a world in which every war poses a threat to human civilization. He followed up his message, with a plea for global support to Ukraine. However, his performance was to drown in the media storm surrounding the domestic political furore in the United States known as the Ukraine Scandal, a saga that has eagerly been followed around the world. When Zelensky and Trump stood in front of the cameras in New York that same day, they at first followed the familiar pattern. The pair sat leaning forwards, man-spreading in their chairs, exchanging random courtesies and nodding to each other. Trump explained that Ukraine had many prominent figures, citing by way of example the Ukrainian winner of a Miss Universe contest. An incorrect claim. But the gentleman had hardly stopped shaking hands for the photo op when the first question about the corruption scandal was fired at Zelensky. The Ukrainian president replied with a glum expression that he did not intend to meddle in the US election campaign, upon which the questions were passed on to Trump, who served up his usual word salad of self-glorification and anti-Democrat diatribe. The presidents were bombarded with questions about the scandal. Zelensky switched from English to Russian, and the diplomatic encounter devolved into a cacophony of heated questions from the press in an atmosphere of spirited exasperation. For Trump, all bluster and bragging, it seemed to be business as usual. Zelensky, on the other hand, ended up looking crestfallen and slightly disgusted. Despite all the talk of a common world, it was obvious to Zelensky and everyone else that his presence in New York did not revolve around a new era of cooperation. Instead, the Ukrainian president had become a mere ingredient in a melee of accusations against Trump concerning the unethical and potentially illegal blackmail of Ukraine, a name of a country that in the Western media that autumn became synonymous with the corruption scandal. Trump had called Zelensky to insist that he should open a Ukrainian investigation into Hunter Biden, the son of the current US President Joe Biden, for shady business dealings with a Ukrainian gas company. The demand communicated to the Ukrainian president, who was in desperate need of military aid from the US, was that he should participate in Trump's vendetta against a political rival. From the transcripts of the phone call, which were wired around the world during the scandal, it is clear how Zelensky pitifully yields to the pressure. The two presidents agree on how unreliable EU support to Ukraine was, and Zelensky swears that the new prosecutor general was 100% the president's man, as the ignominiously publicized transcripts read. Zelensky expressed his willingness to comply with Trump's demands and flattered the American president by elevating him to the status of role model. We brought in many, many new people. Not the old politicians, not the typical politicians. Because we want to have a new format and a new type of government. You are a great teacher for us, and in that. The comparison between the presidents was not without merit. Both had at least successfully converted TV celebrity into political power, albeit with different intentions. In Ukraine, Zelensky had attempted to embody the pursuit of the rule of law, the fight against corruption, and the aspirations towards constitutional virtue. But the phone call exposed his loyalty to Trump's self-interested abuse of power. It was a reminder of Ukraine's historical role. The country is large, but still fragile. And, in its need of powerful allies, its leaders never failed to pin their hopes on the wrong partners at the wrong time, only to be promptly thrown to the wolves. Zelensky's flattery came from a man who was up against the wall and in desperate need of bringing the war in Donbass to an end with the moral, military, and diplomatic assistance of the United States. Volodymyr Zelensky ascended to office with a sensational 73% of the vote, after a campaign supported by funds from the oligarch Ihor Kolomoysky. In the lead-up to the election, the number of parliamentary seats held by his party was zero. The party, Sluha Nerudu, servant of the people, was formed in March 2018 by staff at the production company Kvartal 95, which had made a comedy series of the same name in which Zelensky plays a nice-guy provincial teacher who delivers an impassioned pean against corruption that, having been recorded by a student, gets him elevated to president. The TV series was inordinately popular. It continued until 2019, after which it morphed into an election campaign. The sequel continued in the Parliament that same spring. So, how is the young Ukrainian democracy faring? I trudged through Kiev to the affluent tracts of the Podil district to meet Kirillo Tretiak at EECMD, a Dutch-supported organisation that seeks to develop multi-party democracy in Eastern Europe. Five cities in Ukraine have established schools to teach young people about democratic processes. The state of democracy? Well, it exists. That's about it. The Baltic states did the right thing after the collapse of the USSR. They were resolute and established modern democracies. We went wrong and lost another 20 years or more, he says as we sit at a table in a sparsely furnished but air-conditioned office in one of Padil's newly renovated stately buildings. Ukraine has over a hundred parties, a couple of dozen of which lean towards the nationalist side, and almost all of them show no interest in manifestos and principles. On taking up office in 2019, Zelensky went on the offensive against the coterie of established pompous politicians and announced a new general election for that summer. It resulted in a landslide victory for the servant of the people. In the 450-seat parliament, for Rada, there are now 10 parties represented. The Servant of the People won 254 of these seats and thus has a majority that gives it a powerful mandate to act. Forty-six seats went to independent candidates. Another three parties, Yulia Tymoshenko's Fatherland, Petro Poroshenko's European Solidarity, and rock star Svetoslav's voice clinched 26, 25, and 20 seats respectively. Two pro-Russian parties, Opposition Platform and Opposition bloc won 43 and 6 seats. The pro-Russian party of the regions, formerly a heavyweight, no longer exists. The far-right Svoboda won one seat. The drama of the political landscape, as we can see, is monumental. Poroshenko failed to keep corruption in check and delivered no results that were visible to normal people, and so his support collapsed, says Kirillo Tretiak. Ukraine can be seen as having three political blocs a nationalist, a Western orientated, and a pro Russian. But since the parties are largely based on the theatrics of charismatic leaders, it is not the ideology that people vote for, but the show. And when the people get bored, the parties can be expunged. From a Western European perspective, the party system in Ukraine is a joke. This is not an insult. It is simple fact. The parties have weak structures and limited regional support. They are hastily rigged up around a leader and financed by some oligarch. After the 2019 election, a total of 80% of the MPs were unknowns. The main problem is that our parties are not rooted in ideology, he continues. Ideology is associated with communism and so parties are formed as projects around famous people. This is not to say that Zelensky is one of many corrupt opportunists in a dysfunctional system. Volodymyr Zelensky, an actor with a law degree, with Russian as a native language and a Jewish background, was viewed by many as a newcomer who took his ministerial seat with good intentions. He grew up in krivi Rych a raw industrial town in southeastern Ukraine's coal and iron belt. He ran much of his election campaign on social media, and while rarely agreeing to be interviewed, he demonstrated a genuine will to replace satrapy with responsibility and humility. As a Russophone from the iron-coal belt, he proved himself able to gather votes from both the East and the West, an uncommon feat in Ukraine. The difference in political direction between Zelensky and the former president, chocolate manufacturer Petro Poroshenko, was not great. For both, policy was about modernization, liberal democratic reform, and a mobilization centered on Ukrainian unity. Election pledges concerned bringing Ukraine closer to the EU and NATO, ending the war in the East, lowering taxes, bolstering the economy, making democracy more directly representative, increasing the transparency of the state and, of course, curbing corruption, that eternal promise. Zelensky was vague on his actual policies and, due to his lack of concreteness, he became a surface upon which the people could project their dreams. He was a popular, decent guy with good intentions, albeit with somewhat troubling links to the oligarch Kolomoisky. Zelensky's ambitions are laudable. His motives are reasonable. He hasn't been schooled by the power elite and doesn't seem to be driven by money. But the oligarchs control wealthy corporations, banks and media, and the question is how much good intentions can change a capricious and elite-dominated system. Wonders Kirill Tretiak. Once in power, the Zelensky regime made some agreeable decisions, such as cutting the president's procession to two cars without sirens and turning the annual independence celebrations from a pompous military parade to a people's dignity march. First, a good TV show, then a political organisation. At best, a political programme too. In this state of existence, in which celebrity replaces ideology, an amiable TV star can knock out established politicians. This is also seen on a local level. In Zaporizhia, a local magnate, with four parliamentary election wins under his belt, found himself beaten by a wedding photographer. Ukraine is a country where everything is possible. Everything is in a state of flux. And nothing is stable. In Ukraine's political party landscape, with its many rough and ready projects, we find names that have an antiquated and pompous ring to Western ears the strength of the people, the force of power, European solidarity, and folk and honour. You can already hear the trumpets and drums. The parties are often short-lived entities that implode in a blaze of power struggles and corruption. Comedy and celebrity that mutate into political reality only to be abandoned by disappointed voters. It sounds like a nightmare. But according to Hannah Zoderbaum, who has researched the country's oligarchic rule, the situation also results in a form of dynamics that brings its own benefits. Oligarchs do not all act in the same way, and they have different strategies for legitimization. They also constitute disparate power nodes, which can also cultivate diversity. And Ukraine's authoritarian features have waned over time. Up until the early 2000s, under President Kuchma, the oligarchic clans had been closely linked in a network of common profit interests. Since then, pluralism has increased. Today, half a dozen magnates comprise the dominant national elite. Who is in this notorious and feared cabinet? Rinat Agmietov. A miner's son with a Crimea, Tatar and Muslim background is by far the country's most powerful oligarch. His company, Metinvest, has its roots in eastern Ukraine's coal and steel industry. But the political party he favoured, the party of the regions, has ceased to exist. And Akhmetov's loyalty to pro-Russian forces during the Maidan protests smothered Akhmetov in bad will. Media Group Ukraine and Sivodnia Multimedia have been his media outlets, as well as printed newspapers. Viktor Pinchuk is another magnate who, along with Akhmetov, profited from the privatisation of the steel industry in eastern Ukraine. His reputation is better. As a patron of the arts, the Pinchuk Arts Centre is one of his, he is the oligarch that cuts the most progressive intellectual figure. He has also organised annual European strategy conferences with international dignitaries, but has in recent years kept a low political profile. He owns Starlight Media, the country's largest media conglomerate with six TV channels and several radio stations in the Taver Media Group. There's Ihor Kolomoisky, a contentious, uncompromising oligarch with a Jewish background from Dnipro, and one-time owner of Private Bank. This, the country's largest bank, was nationalised in 2016, after having been pushed to the brink of bankruptcy in a racketeering scandal. He made his fortune in the iron ore industry, centred on Krivi Rih. Kolomoisky owns One Plus One Media, on whose TV channel Zelensky rose to presidential power, and the ties between the two are a constant source of speculation. Dimitro Fiatash became rich by acting as a distributor of gas from Central Asia to Europe in a partnership with the state-run Naftogaz and Russian Gazprom. His empire has been shaken by corruption lawsuits. He's been under house arrest in Vienna, where he owns a villa, pending an investigation into allegations of money laundering, bribery and mafia links, all in relation to the United States and the Biden affair. Petro Poroshenko, chocolate manufacturer, media mogul and president, 2014-2019, leads the European Solidarity Party and has Channel 5 as his TV medium. Brought down by the election fiasco of 2019. Viktor Medvedchuk, pro-Russian former Yanukovych advisor, lawyer, and Kuchma head of staff, with close ties to Putin and a seat on the executive boards of several political organizations. His close colleague Taras Kozak owns the TV channels News 1, Ukraine 112, and Zeke. Yulia Tymoshenko, former prime minister and head of the Fatherland Party, grew rich on the sale of Russian gas to Ukrainian companies. She later became Viktor Yushenko's running mate during the Orange Revolution. Timoshenko ended up being placed under arrest following countless corruption allegations. There are other oligarchs. For example, Pavel Fuchs, Hennady Bogolubov, Kostyantin Zhivago, Serhii Lavochkin, Yuri Kosyuk, and Valery Horoshkovsky. Perhaps even the Syrian Adnan Kivan with economic power and media outlets at their disposal, but with a lower profile and largely regional power base. The lives of the oligarchs have come to be surrounded by litigation and controversy on the fringes of the law. The conditions that Ukraine's politicians have to handle in the 21st century are, on the one hand, a series of woes. The country is in a state of low-intensity war and demographic crisis, with appalling class differences, endemic poverty, low wages, below-subsistence pensions, environmental degradation and rampant corruption. Yet there is a parallel Ukraine, with stylish, booming cities boasting all desirable modern services that have quickly opened up the country to the outside world. Moreover, digitalization has immersed the country in a global culture, creating jobs in a blossoming IT sector. When the website Our World in Data published statistics on the number of corona tests carried out in 29 countries, it was easy to note with some bitterness that with its paltry 500 tests, Ukraine was at the bottom of the list, below Lithuania and Pakistan. This said, arguably the main headline was that Ukraine was actually one of the 29 nations that promptly reported the number of tests carried out to official institutions. A nation that is now, in 2020, stepping out of obscurity. As we sit in the EECMD office, Kirilo Tretiak briskly thunders through all of Ukraine's problems, such as the need to dismantle oligarch and corporate power, bolster small and medium sized enterprises find ways of selling and purchasing land, address environmental destruction, and institute a sustainable civil life. All in all, things might look dark indeed, but for every deposed and often castigated president, democracy has gained a slightly stronger foothold. Kirill Otretyak is one of the many industrious actors helping to strengthen the country's democratic institutions. What political issues does he consider the most pressing? If we disregard the war, which has to end, I see four concrete issues as the most important. Corruption, small businesses, land ownership, and a party system based on programmes and ideas instead of personality. And a president who doesn't want to be immediately thrown out of the window must be able to deliver tangible improvements to people's everyday lives. Kirill Otretyak also sees these challenges as part of a more long-term coming-to-terms with a lingering legacy from the Soviet era. Communism destroyed our economy, buildings, and culture, but also people's sense of mutual trust. So a lot has to be built up from scratch. The economy, the buildings, the national identity, and the responsibility. And there's the exodus from Ukraine, which threatens the entire nation. We have no time to lose.